Practice owners, do you have a healthy money mindset when it comes to not only your practice but your personal life as well? Do you know the factors that should and shouldn't go into deciding what to charge patients? We answer these two vital questions and so much more this week on the Provider's Edge. Lindsay, a financial therapist, joins me on this episode and shares key financial practices that all health providers can directly apply to their lives and to their healthcare business. Private practice owners, are you ready to rewrite the rules for your practice so you can have more time off, a great team, and more income while delivering better patient care? Then you are in the right place. Welcome to the Provider's Edge podcast. I'm your host, Sabrina Rompak. I'm a provider, an international peak performance keynote speaker, and a best-selling author. My guests and I help providers like you control your practice, control your life, control your future. This is your defining moment to be a disruptor in healthcare. This episode is sponsored by Sabrina Rombach LLC. Yes, I am sponsoring our own show, The Provider's Edge, because here we are celebrating the great works that we are doing in the healthcare space and continue to support each other, collaborate with each other, and accelerate together. Hi, everyone. We know we always talk about self-care, but self-care has so many different categories and domains as well. What about your financial self-care? And why do healthcare providers need to practice financial healthcare? We know healthcare providers are great at talking about how to serve their patients. And even the big topic, a hot topic nowadays is about how do we up-level our own well-being and preventing burndown. Now, on top of that, how often do we incorporate financial self-care into that conversation? And therefore, I invited Lindsay with us today to talk about what is financial self-care and the four crucial ways that each private practice owners must implement now so you can have a profitable business. Now, Lindsay is a biracial financial therapist, a podcast host as well, a speaker, author of the book, Financial Anxiety Solution, and her coaching practice, she helps therapists in social justices or of uh, marginalized identities grow them profitable practice from the inside out so they can stop feeling icky about money and start setting and sticking to sustainable rates that allow them to grow their business in alignment with their values. And she lives with her partner and their dog on a occupied land of the fox. Um, I can I can say those names for you because if oh you're my not gosh, familiar with yes. them, yeah. So I'm I on occupied no land of, of the fox, Peoria, Potawatomi, and Anishinaabe people, which is currently known as Michigan. There, that is a sole handful. And then thank you for saving me on that. Part. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> All right, Lindsay, I, this topic, I think, 
many people talk about financial intelligence, and we really think about what does that mean for us. I, earning is not just having money or spending money, and、um, but when you think about financial self care, I think it's such a exciting topic to think about nowadays because. Covid has so many people worry about where they are standing,、uh, how much they should be saving, do they have、uh, covering themselves?、Uh, there's so much shift,、uh, especially a couple years back in not having a physical practice or location. Many people have switched to telemedicine, and whether they love it or they don't, and there's definitely a security issue in that round. So, how did you come up with? Financial self care, and、uh, how did yourself got so identified into that niche and now become this expert? Thanks for having me, Sabrina. So my background is in clinical social work, and so I have my master's degree in social work. And like many social workers, my first job was at a nonprofit, which most healthcare providers can relate to, of working long hours and having low pay, and the the pay really being that you're doing something good for your clients and patients and for your community. And when I got my first job in a nonprofit. I got my first paycheck, and I was earning less money than I earned as a waitress. And it was this big shift. Like I can remember the feeling in my stomach when I got that first paycheck of how am I going to make ends meet? How am I going to survive? How am I going to provide good quality care if I can't take care of myself? And as you can imagine, my mental and physical health suffered. I developed chronic insomnia. My anxiety and depression symptoms came back, and my immune system was totally messed up because I wasn't sleeping,、um, which, as we all know, impacts so many other things. So I was getting colds and flus all the time. And so I did what personal finance experts told me to do. I budgeted. I figured out ways to get. Savvy about my spending, and I tried to cut and cut and cut, and I did whatever I could, but I still was struggling to make ends meet. I could meet all my financial needs, but it was really close, and that was causing a lot of anxiety. It wasn't until I got a new job where I got a significant pay raise, about forty percent pay raise. And then I could start sleeping at night. <laughs> my insomnia resolved itself. My physical health improved, and my dep- depression and anxiety really were able to be better managed by the medication and therapy that I was already in. And it was this light bulb moment for me, Sabrina, that we can do as much as possible to cut our spending. But a great way to actually move into financial self care is to earn more. So on the back end, as I was trying to figure out how to save money, I was consuming a lot of content about personal finances, and I kept seeing these themes come up、um, that. You know, in order to be good with money, you just had to cut, 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 and we didn't talk a lot about earning. And for I was in a multidisciplinary practice. The next practice I went to, I was working with psychiatrists and physicians and OB/GYNs、um, and other social workers and other PAs and MPs. And there was a common thread there of kind of this joke being like, "Ha ha, we're not here because we care about the money." And it just really struck me that. Here we are, and that's why I love what you do in your show. Here we are providing care for others, but we're not taking our own advice. 
you know, and we don't have to look far to see people in our field who are doing this. You know, there's that joke, like step outside of a a hospital and who are you going to see smoking cigarettes? It's going to be the nurses and doctors who are in there taking care of other people. It's not that we don't know what to do. We do, but implementing self-care is hard. And in order to really have a solid self-care ritual, we have to have the money to be able to do it. Even if that self-care doesn't cost us money, it probably costs us time. And in our society, we have time and we have money as our kind of resources that are fueling us. And time in our society is bought by money. So even if you're not spending money, you're not going to the spa to take care of yourself. Even if you're sitting down and reading a book and taking a mental mental health day, you still need to have the income to support your spaciousness to provide holistic self-care for yourself. It's so well said. I make all my clients do a time value-based calculation. And some people don't even understand what what does that mean, right? I just got paid a salary or yes, I got some bonus on top of it based on my RV use for those who it's how we measure for productivity. (laughs) And uh, and that's more medical, but now other fields might have something Mm -hmm. different. Now, when you actually understand your own value per hour, you also understand that number really is equivalent to self-worth. And if we're not asking for that next raise or ask our patients for those who has a self-pay uh, program set up, then you're really lowering who you are as the provider and then what value you're actually delivering to these patients. Don't you think? Like, I know one of the biggest things that you talk about is money mindset. Yeah. It's, I love what you said. And I think it's really important to dissect this. So this idea that what we charge is reflective of our self-worth, it can be helpful for some people, but for a lot of providers, they have this kind of imposter syndrome that they aren't worth that. And so for those folks, what I invite them to do is actually create a little bit of like mental separation. So instead of saying charge X as a reflection of your self-worth, what I want you to say is what you just said, Sabrina, which is charge X, which is reflective of the value that you provide. Because sometimes we struggle with our self-worth. And so then to put a price tag on it can feel really, really hard. So to create that space that we need so we can actually practice financial self-care, we can say, what is the cost of the value of the service that I am providing for my patients? And how can I price that accordingly? And sometimes adding that little layer of separation can help people to better price their services. Right. It's what is the value? Now we have to think about this value in your specialty. How big is this problem, right? Whether you are preventing someone who has keep recurrent of not able to sleep, as we were saying, uh, and sleep we know is so impactful in many different areas of performance. If you're normally just a healthy person and also a health implication, Right. Mm-hmm. And if you just simply lack of sleep energy, we know people tend to make more mistakes. So if even you put that value, what would it be a cost if someone is not sleeping well and making mistakes in their career, but you're the one who is able to help that patient to come out of that? Right. That is a great thing to really think about the realistic value in something. I think that's a great point that Lindsay, you just brought up. Like, what is the true effect in what are you providing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so when we think about money mindset, for some providers, it can be helpful 
to again, take a step back from their practices and start thinking back to what were some of their first exposures or their first memories related to money, because we all have them. And when we think about money mindset, this isn't just about, oh, scarcity mindset or abundance mindset. Those terms kind of get thrown around and I think they can be helpful, but also if we don't add nuance, if we don't add context, it's really hard to know what that means. So when Sabrina and I are talking about money mindset, what we're talking about is what you believe money can or should do for you in your life. And so your money story or your money mindset answers the questions that you have, like, am I allowed to spend money? Am I allowed to save money? Am I allowed to have debt? Is debt good for me? Is it bad for me? Am I allowed to take insurance? Am I allowed to do cash pay only, right? So thinking about all of these questions leading up to your practice, but really thinking about what do I believe my role of, what do I believe the role of money is in my life? And how does that impacting the way in which I'm showing up as a provider? So we want to start with some of those early money memories and really thinking about what we think money means for us in our lives, and then start layering on those questions about how money shows up for us in our practices. Does it make it hard for you to charge your clients for your services? Does it make it hard for you to charge a late cancel fee? Does it make it hard for you to go on vacation or to even just like take a day off. So thinking about all the things that our relationship with money impacts. Right. I had this conversation I feel like it's so close to heart, both with friends who are really successful, but they will go on vacation, steal nickel and dime. And that it just doesn't make sense for me. And the same thing with clientele uh, who is ready to open up another practice and feeling like it couldn't take up a loan. It needed to be, oh, I, I needed to work on X more months and then maybe I'll save up and then maybe then I'll talk to my financial advisor about it. Like, are we not trusting ourselves enough to take on opportunities and understand how much you value you're providing? You're definitely going to gain that back because who you are, how much you're actually serving your patients and they love you to be able to come back to you and really also ask other people who has a similar problem. And I think that definitely go back to how we see money. Do we have experience when we're younger or even in school? Maybe you're allowed to take loans or you only went to school on grant funding. And therefore, because you have no experience of handling loans and it become a fear, right? I think that's a a good point. So number one, where we're starting is how, what was the experience we had with money, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. And so now that we're really thinking about, okay, so we understand what we had maybe struggle or feel comfortable about money, right? Maybe we, maybe when we're younger, we had the jobs where we're able to budget. We know exactly how much to spend. So we saved up for our next concert tickets or the trip that you want it. And, um, and then uh, some people might not have that experience. So they can talk to you specifically on like what could feel safe, right? Mm-hmm. And remove some of those thoughts that's not really real realistically, but it's just something our mind have created based on different stories that we hear from family, friends, or even media. Now, um, you also mentioned about setting price, right? For, so how do we really even go into that? I definitely believe it's a struggle for many practitioners when they start stepping away from uh, 
uh, not insurance space. And even they do have insurance space, maybe in between their client not having insurance coverage, they're willing to still see their patient because at the end of the day, they love to serve. But in those times, how do they even set a price on their work? Yeah, this is the biggest question that I get, and I'm going to give a very therapist response, but I'll back it up in a second, which is setting your price in private practice is, it's tricky, and it also depends on a lot of factors. I will share with you some of the mistakes I see providers make when they price their services, and then talk about some ways to overcome those mistakes. A couple of mistakes that I see happen all the time are providers choosing the cost of their services based on what other people are charging in their area. Have you seen that? Then Google other similar physicians and what they are charging in the area. If you ever try to figure out how much difference people are charging, it can be really challenging. You might come up with some arbitrary price and compare it to that one, and perhaps you charge just below what other people are pricing their services on. But that's a mistake because we don't know what factors went into their decision and they're probably basing it off what others are charging as well. It becomes a cycle of everybody basing their prices on everybody else but not really having a meaning behind it. The other mistake I see providers make is basing their price on what insurance company reimburse. They use those prices as a benchmark. As we all know, those reimbursement rates can vary widely depending on where you are and the insurance providers that you are panel with. If you're trying to leave insurance panel, but you are using their prices as a benchmark, you're probably underpricing yourself right away. The third mistake I see providers make when they're pricing their services is then tell themselves, you raise your price once the practice is full, right? They'll say something like, I'll price my services low once my practice fills up, then I can charge higher once I'm hit capacity. But how often does that end up happening? Means when was the last time you ever raised your price? It never becomes the right time or the right circumstances to raise your price. If you like today's episode, please share with your friends and colleagues who are also healthcare leaders. They will appreciate you for thinking about their growth, less all paying it forward. Now let's get back to the rest of our show. So a couple of mistakes that I see happen all the time are providers basing the cost of their services based on what other people are charging in their area, right? So they they Google other acupuncturists in the area or other internal med providers in the area, and they see if they can figure out how much they charge, which first of all is really hard. If you've ever tried to figure out how much different people are charging, it can be really challenging. But if you figure it out, they go, okay, so-and-so charges you know, $100 for this particular code. I'm going to charge 95, right? So we price it at or just below what other people are pricing it on. 
But that's a mistake because we don't know how that particular person or those people came up with their prices. And they're probably not basing it off of anything other than what somebody else was charging. So it becomes this cycle of everybody basing their prices on everybody else, but not really having a meaning. So that is the first mistake is basing your prices on what other people are charging. The other mistake I see providers make is basing their prices based on what insurance companies reimburse, right? They use those prices as a benchmark. And as we all know, as providers, those reimbursement rates can vary wildly depending on where you are and depending on the insurance provider that you're on panel with. So if you're trying to leave insurance panels, but you're using their prices as a benchmark, you're probably underpricing yourself right away. So that's another mistake that I see people see, and or I see people do. And then the third mistake that I see providers make when they are pricing is they tell themselves like they'll raise their prices once their practice is full, right? So they'll say something like, I'll price my services low. Once my practice fills up, then I'll raise my prices. But what often happens is they end up moving that goalpost. So they decide, okay, my practice is full. Well, actually now I have to wait till I onboard a new clinician. Then if I onboard a new clinician, then I can raise my prices. And then they keep moving that goalpost. So there's this myth that's like floating around that we have to start out by pricing our services low and then slowly raise them over time. So those are three mistakes. So how do we actually price our services? Go back to what Sabrina and I talked about. What is the value of the service that you are providing? And also think like, I'm willing to pay more for high care, medical and mental health care. I just am. That's a value for me. So I'm willing to pay a bit more for that and deal with whether or not insurance reimburses me on the back end. The types of clients you work with may be similar. They might say, I don't care what it costs. I just want good quality care. I don't want to be rushed in my primary care appointment. I don't want to feel like I can't reach out to my clinician. I don't want to feel like I'm just a number. Or I have to like take a number when I get in. I want to feel like my clinician is actually there to take care of me. And when we have private practices, we have the capacity to do the type of work that we can't do in larger healthcare systems. We all know this, you know, and, and, you know, to their credit, they're doing the best they can in a really broken system, but we also don't have to be the one individual who's going to fix the, the medicine problem here in the U.S., right? So that's a little bit of a tangent. So anyway, coming back to how do we price our services, we have to really think about three things. So the value of the service you provide. Two, we also have to think about the cost of doing business. One of the biggest mistakes I see providers make is underestimating how much it costs to run a business and guessing like, oh yeah, this electronic health record will cost this much. I think my rent will be this much. I think supplies will be this much, but they don't actually ever sit down and run the numbers to figure out every single month, what is the cost that you are going to be responsible for paying for all of the products, the services, your employees, your liability insurance, all of those things. Coming back to how we practice our services, we have to really think about four things. The first is the value of the services you provide. I used to say it as you should charge based upon your self-worth, but physicians are human too and a lot of them still struggling with imposter syndrome. I reframe it as charge based upon the value you provide. This turned it from doubting yourself to realizing the extreme value and expertise you provide to your patients and having your price reflect that value. 
another equation that you perhaps will help you to think about what people will be willing to pay for your services is this. The top number of the equation is desired outcome, give a score one to 10, and add likelihood to succeed. That's also a score one to 10. So give yourself a desired outcome score uh, in your patient's perspective and how likely they're able to achieve that desired outcome of healing. Um, give it your So those are two score, possibly total of a 20, right? 10 each divided by time to achieve that desired outcome. Also a one to 10, uh, one being very, very little time needed to achieve and 10 being very uh, long time to achieve. And then plus effort and sacrifice, how much they have to do different activity at home, medication, regimen, surgery, what do they have to sacrifice and putting effort for, right? Again, one is very little effort and 10 means a lot, a lot of effort, right? So once you uh, do its potential 20 points up top and 20 points on the bottom, so use the total of a top number of desired outcome and likelihood to succeed, divided by the sum of time to achieve and effort and sacrifice score. That is the value equation that you can see. Of course, the higher the value, the more likelihood people are agreeing with the price that you're set and the system that you have created, the treatment plan you are offering them. All right, so number two, we also have to think about cost of doing business. One of the biggest mistake I see providers make is underestimating how much it costs to run a business and guessing how much certain parts of the business are instead of sitting down each month to find out what is really costing them, even down to buying printing papers. The third thing is because we are private practice owners, healthcare businesses, startups, we also have to take care of our own personal finances. Sometimes when you continue to make money and put everything back into the business right away, you don't feel the win because you're not seeing profit at all. We have to be able to afford our needs and some wants in order to take care of ourselves. The fourth thing is you can change your prices. I think a lot of providers get caught up on the as soon as I get my fee schedule, that's it. I can never touch again. You have the capacity to change it as long as you have it in your practice statement and your onboarding paperwork. That's the second thing is not considering your business expenses. And then the third thing is because we are private practice owners, we also have to take care of our personal finances. So we also have to know our personal numbers and make sure that the prices that we are charging for the services and the value that we provide not only keeps our business afloat, but keeps us afloat. Just like Sabrina was saying earlier, we have to be able to afford the types of things that we want to do, not want to do, need to do, to take care of ourselves so we can show up as fully rested providers and show up at our version of what what is the peak performance for us? So that means we have to make sure that we're, we're covering the things in our personal life. So those are the, the three things that I would say to consider as you're pricing your services. And then the fourth thing 
this is just, just to ease everybody's minds, you can change your prices. I think a lot of providers get caught up on, as soon as I set my fee schedule, that's it, I can never touch it again. You have the capacity to change it. As long as you have it in your private practice paperwork and your onboarding paperwork when you're seeing new clients, that you know your fees are subject to change, but you'll notify them 30 days in advance, 90 days in advance, whatever your office policies are, you can always change those prices. So let's say you get to the end of quarter two and you're like, oh my gosh, we are really cutting it close. I feel like this is really, you know, we're not going to make it. Guess what kind of provider you're going to be if your practice goes under? Not a good one. So we have to also give ourselves permission to change those prices, to edit those prices over time and not get stuck on, well, I told my clients this was the price or I told my patients this was the price, getting comfortable saying it's okay to change. So I guess there's four things. <laughs> yeah, I think that even the last thing is very crucial that it's okay to change. And nowadays, change is a normal thing. I mean, if you think about inflation every year, it changes anyway, right? And then the, people are known to have certain things that's okay to have fluctuation because we know no matter what type of business you have, you're going to have expenses. So thinking about what's the profit margin you're trying to hit and then what's okay for you to actually spend as expenses and what's okay for you to say, oh, those are extra money that I can have additional gross implementation things. Mm -hmm. So instead of like, oh, I'm just so excited about everything. Let me just put everything into my expense because I justify as I'm serving my patient. I need to, I'm only in the gross phase. Yes, profit is so small. That's okay. But it's not, right? Like if we don't have enough to sustain the practice for ourselves, for our patients, then what would be beneficial for your patient if you close tomorrow? That's discontinuity of care. That's disservice exactly. for them. Exactly. So crucial for us to really think about this. Uh, I And I think the last couple of questions, uh, we kind of touched on um, having insurance side as, um, as there or to help you, um, whether you take insurance or not, but it, having the self-paid model, uh, which is pretty typical in any urgent care or some uh, direct primary care and therapists or even individual uh, functional medicine, even chiropractic type of practices. And it, it all comes down to what Lindsay said, how do you value yourself in the type of services you provide? So you can set the right price so then you can not moving uh, not make the mistake of, oh my gosh, if I said I couldn't change, right? Um, right. And the last thing I think we can talk about briefly is on the conflict about should we charge or should we not charge patient when they have a cancellation, right? Because the, the conflict, I believe some people would say, well, I didn't provide services. However, mm -hmm. if they don't show up or they show up with no information for you to review, that means they're not doing themselves the right thing to take care of themselves as a patient. And they're actually also not valuing your time and knowledge to be there for them, right? Mm -hmm. If everyone start canceling without consequence, how do you keep anybody accountable? So how do you uh, address that issue? Before I even get into how I address that issue, I'll just say that as a recipient of somebody, as a person who pays those cancellation fees, I actually appreciate them. I think back to pre-pandemic days, I worked out at a gym that was like 
group classes, group exercise classes. And any time I did, there was a window of time you could cancel. I think it was like eight hours up until eight hours before the class, you could cancel without a penalty. If it was less than eight hours before the class started, you were charged a portion of the fee. So it was like 10 bucks, 15 bucks, something like that. But Sabrina, I'm telling you, it helped me to actually go to the class because what would happen would be I'd get through my work day. I'd be like, oh, I don't really want to go to class. But then I'd see my phone and I'm like, but I also don't want to pay that $15 cancellation fee. So I guess I'm just going to go. So it also helped to hold me accountable to honor my commitments to my own health. So I'll just say that as like a personal experience as a person who's been charged fees for cancellations or late cancellations, I actually don't mind it. I understand it. And it actually helps to hold me accountable. So when it comes to the provider who is struggling with whether or not to charge somebody for services, you again, get to decide how much you charge. Do you charge a flat fee, no matter what the service was? Um, If it was a 15, 30, 45 or 60 minute appointment, do you just have a flat fee based on whatever it was? Do you charge based on the type of appointment that they were going to schedule? Do you just charge what that appointment was? You have to decide that. I think having a cancellation policy, as you mentioned, Sabrina, helps to create that accountability and buy-in from our patients. And you can create a, a cancellation schedule that works for your clientele and that works for your patient population. For some patients, it's going to be very easy to say, like, you need to give me 48 hours notice. For other patients, um, maybe you're dealing with folks who have a ton of chronic pain and they don't know if they're going to wake up and be able to actually drive into the clinic that day. Maybe then you give a 12-hour cancellation notice. So kind of creating a window of cancellation time that's in alignment with your patient population that feels authentic to you and also feels appropriate for the clients that you're working with. The other thing when we're thinking about cancellation fees is that we're still humans. We still have empathy. We understand when something goes wrong. Even though I tell my clients, look, if you don't show up, I've carved out that time for you on my calendar. That time is just yours for you and I to talk about what you need to talk about for the week. Even if they don't show up, I can still decide to not charge them if there was something truly emergent in their lives right? If they call me the next day and they're they're a client who never misses an appointment, they're always on time. They're always courteous. They're always doing their therapy homework and they miss. I'm going to be worried, you know, and call them. And if I don't hear from them, I might wait a little bit before I, you know, hit pay or whatever for their cancellation fee. And if they tell me, oh my gosh, I was in a car accident, obviously I'm going to waive the fee for them. I'm human still. I still have empathy. But if they're like, oh shoot, slip my mind, I get it. And that wouldn't be in my opinion, for me and the type of work that I do, something that I would waive the fee for. So you have to decide again, but I I do think it's helpful to think about getting your patient buy-in, making that fee, that cancellation window in alignment with your patient population, and then you can always decide whether or not to waive that fee. Yeah, that's such a great point is that we all have to think about this emergency situation, but not if everyone constantly have the emergency show up, especially it's the same person, then we also know we shouldn't be taking for granted. If you have to stay late to Mm -hmm. wait for that one patient who's running 
a half hour, hour behind, guess what? You are pushing the rest of your patients as well. To be fair to everyone, both your office staff, yourself, and the fellow patients who are coming to see you, Mm -hmm. there should be a safe boundary. And we know by research, as long as people know there's a pre-established reason and they're not taken by surprise since that's all part of your patient onboarding, mm-hmm. they will be fine with it. And mm-hmm. I think all of us just simply needed to have like, oh, okay, that's your standard. We generally all respect each other for that because at the end of the day, we know if we all go to see a, a practitioner, we're going there to get help. And we respect that person enough to go to them. And so, of course, no one trying to take advantage of any situation. And we can uh, assess individually, but not having any guidelines, definitely it is not really truly fair, right? Like, are we all going to just wait around for people, right? Even for family and friends, um, just out of respect, you wanted to tell that person that you're not going to show up. Right. Exactly. And I like what you said too about boundaries. When we say this is the way my practice operates and we actually operate our practice in that way, that builds trust with our patients. So if we say, when you show up on time, I will see you. If you late cancel, there will be a fee. And we actually uphold those boundaries. It builds trust in us as practitioners and us as clinicians. And it helps that patient to go, oh my gosh, I can actually trust this person. And I want to come back and I want to do my, whatever my homework is for, you know, in between, in between appointments. And I also want to tell my family and friends who've been looking for a healthcare provider, Hey, this person actually does what they say, because you can go on any provider website and they tell you they're, you know, patient centered care, but we all know what it feels like to sit in a waiting room for multiple hours on end in some place that tells you they do patient centered care, right? We, we, have to actually model and do what we say we're going to do to build trust with our patients. Right. And this is something even you can set us even on your reminder, text messages or emails to your patients. I even have that in my uh, calendar when whether they're a a paid client or a client on the uh, refer to me for a complimentary consultation, there always says if you're late for more than 10 minutes, I'm less likely to have a rebook with you. So Mm -hmm. be respectful for both of our time. I I have the disclosure disclaimer, then people are more aware like, oh, okay. And then so I I have a second one to ask. It, I understand emergency happens. If do, please message me at this number. And so they are aware that it's not like we're not being empathetic mm-hmm. toward other people. It, it can happen, but there's a contingency of what's more respectful for you, that makes sense for you to set up those boundaries. I love it, this topic. We definitely have a lot more that we can talk about, but as we're wrapping up, um, we know it's totally hard to be a practitioner even by itself. And then as you're running your practice, you are your own boss and you are entrepreneur, you're the big problem solvers, you're uh, innovators. And it's hard to be able to put all the important key aspects of life in the same place. And it's not 
to say we have to balance everything, right? That's not not human. And so when we're asking our uh, speaker at the same time, Lindsay is an expert in financial intelligence, in being someone who can master your financial self-care to be more profitable and more impactful. So Lindsay, when you think about other areas of your life. Um, what do you feel like are the domains that you're, hey, I'm so good and I love it. It's just something I always draw my energy and then support from versus these one or two areas, maybe I can also up-level. Hmm. I, I love that you phrase it as up-level instead of like, what's a problem area? So thank you for doing that. Um, so other domains of my life that I feel really proud of that I do engage in and contribute to for sure, it's It's being engaged in my community and then also taking time to take care of my mental health. And the way that I take care of my mental health is pretty multifaceted. You know, therapy and medication have always been a good fit for me, but other things to help supplement that is making sure that I'm moving my body, making sure that I'm spending time with my dog, um, doing some unplugging from social media as needed and sleep. After experiencing insomnia, I am like, pretty much religious about my sleep. I have my my bedtime, I've got my eye mask, I've got the dark room, I'm sleeping at least seven and a half, but more like eight, eight and a half hours a night. Like I don't mess around when it comes to that. And at one, when it comes to areas that I'm looking to up level, as we, you know, kind of move into a new phase of the pandemic, I'm working on really reconnecting with my friendships and really nurturing those connections. Um, so in general, I feel like I'm connected to my community, but it's like almost like I'm shrinking down my community and, and reweaving those, those threads to rebuild some friendships. Yeah, that's beautiful. I always know is we have the key people in our life, right? And then outside of that, then the inner circle, then the community. So we have to be so grounded and then realign with Mm -hmm. uh, those key people that we can always talk to. And so thank you so much for sharing that. I know people is going to be wanting to connect with you, whether it's by listening to your podcast or having a conversation or checking out your book. Where do you want people to go find you? My practice is called Mind Money Balance, and I'm on all the social channels under that handle. That's the name of my website, my Instagram handle, Twitter. I might even have a TikTok floating around out there, but Mind Money Balance is the place to go. Perfect. So everyone go fund Lindsay at Mind Money Balance. And we appreciate you for joining us today, for listening in, for opening your mind to financial self-care. Until next time, hope everyone have a good week. In today's episode, we discuss the importance of developing a healthy money mindset, not only in your personal life, but within your healthcare business as well. We also discuss how to accurately and meaningfully decide what to charge for your services. The backbone of your income and financial catalyst that drives your practice forward. To recap, there are eight different points. Number one, the do's and don'ts of deciding what to charge are a big part of a healthy money mindset when it comes to not only your practice, but your personal life. We practice self-care or try our best to physical care mental health care what about financial self-care they say money can bring happiness but it does bring security stability 
and allows you to afford not only your needs but also your wants and then some. Of course, feeding our family as well. Having your own practice means that yes, money is harder to make because you directly have to work for it and you're hundred percent responsible for that result. But it also means that the sky is your limit when it comes to your income and growing your practice. Number two, developing and growing a sound money mindset starts by reflecting on your current beliefs about money and where you are rooted from. Until you're aware of your current belief about money, your financial mindset can't grow. The next part is research. Mind Money Balance is a great resource for accurate and good money advice and content. I encourage you today to start developing your money mindset and grow into something big and beautiful. Number three, don't choose what to charge for your services based on what other physicians are charging in your area. This creates a downward cycle of a lot of area physician pricing their services based on incorrect factors. If each one bases the price for their services on each other, but what important variable actually justify for that price? Yes, it's important to stay competitive to an extent, but pricing your services accurately is ultimately a decision that you have to make, not one that should be based upon others are doing. Use the equation that we discussed earlier to help you. Basically, if every type of the same physician in the same area charges the identical pricing, then no one's price is based on fact or their own personal factors that are more important. Number four, don't charge based on what insurance company reimburses. A lot of physicians are using this reimbursement pricing from insurances as a benchmark to base their price off it. However, we all know that those reimbursement rates can widely vary depending on where you are and the provider that you are on the panel with. If you're trying to leave insurance panels, but you're using the price as a benchmark, you're definitely underselling yourself. Number five, do have flexibility when it comes to increasing your prices. We tend to think that services prices are set in stone, but if your practice needs new software or need to hire new employees, do you have the cash flow to do that with the prices you are doing right now? As long as prices change clause is in your onboarding paperwork, you're free to charge your price as you see fit in your growth journey. Number six, do reflect on value of services you provide. Lots of people, even professionals like you, get imposter syndrome and think that what they have to offer might not be that valuable to others. You and what you have to offer to your patients and colleagues is valuable. I used to ask myself, what amount is a reflection of my self-worth? I realized that's the wrong question to ask. The right one to ask is, what amount is reflective of the value that I provide? Sometimes we struggle with self-worth. If we frame it as putting a amount of value we provide, the amount of knowledge, time, kindness, etc. 
then we're more apt to change accordingly. Number seven, do consider the cost of doing business. This goes for any business, but needs to be taken into consideration with your own profit practice too. This might be an obvious business practice to determine what to charge for your services or product. But with physicians in particular, you need to not underestimate the true cost of doing business. You most likely shouldn't be guessing the cost of your bills and wages and use it as the true concrete number and sit down every month to see how much it's actually costing you. The latter is crucial to gain a clear picture of where your business currently sits financially and where it can go. Number eight, last but not least, do remember yourself and what monetary number you would like to bring home. Yes, it's important to keep your business striving and thriving, but you deserve a comfy take-home pay too. You have to see the profit. In order to reach an ideal number, you need to assess what your needs and wants are. Yes, you deserve what you want too. Your business deserves to grow and your personal financial prosperity deserves to grow right along with it. At the end of the day, it is your practice your business so you get to decide what amount you take home thank you for listening to today's episode you're listening to me right now Azar. you're frustrated by how healthcare practices are running today i'm with you i'm looking to change the conversation that we're having in this field it starts with me and it starts with you I want to connect with you and get to know your own struggle or challenges within the healthcare industry. Visit sabrinarombach.com forward slash connect, where you are going to find all of my social media platforms. Feel free to send me a direct message. If you like me, prefer speaking, then you can record a voice message on the page. So come to sabrinarombach.com forward slash connect. And let's continue the conversation. She really gets the conversation. She understands. She's an incredible listener. We were talking about worthiness, and she really understands the concept of it, how it affects people in their businesses, in their clinics, in in their daily life, in their relationships. So I just want to encourage you to, one, listen to our show, but to jump on board and start listening to this woman because she has so much insight and wisdom that you don't want to miss out. So come to sabrinarunback.com forward slash connect and let's continue the conversation.